The scripture this morning comes from Acts 8, 26 through 36. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home, was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice, who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet asking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture that told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, For everyone who is like, oh, we're so excited for Tommy, I'm sorry. Um, I understand because when I come here and I preach, I'm like, I'm excited for Tommy. And I'm like, wait, no, I'm doing it. Um, Yeah, uh, as she said, I'm a professor at Southeastern University in theology, and uh, it's been kind of a long week for me, actually. Tommy asked me on Wednesday to preach, and I was always, like, excited, but Thursday morning, I flew out to go to this kind of academic conference on, uh, it's for a bunch of Pentecostals, and uh, so... Yeah, if, I, if I'm acting a little too much like a Pentecostal, I'm sorry, but that's just, I've been around it for like three days straight. I got home last night around 11 o'clock, and so I'm, I'm a little kind of hyped up on coffee. So if I start speaking really fast, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, uh, one of the things that, especially being at like this academic conference and talking about the Spirit so much, one of the things that they talk so much about, and we talk, because I guess I'm one too, we talk so much about is this word called eschatology. And eschatology can be a strange word. We have some, like, a lot of misconceptions about what eschatology is. And so uh, I think for me growing up, I don't know if you had this experience, but for me growing up, I had that very, like, uh, well, I, I guess I'll just show you the experience I had. Uh, both of these gentlemen, right? Of course, one when I was a kid and one when I was a little bit older. So left behind was, like, the way that we thought about eschatology. You, you thought about the world, the word kind of just means like the study of like the end things or the study of the end times or, or one of those kind of uh, words. How do I make that go away? Oh, good. All right. I was like, it's getting us ahead. I don't know how to use technology. Can you blank that out for me, someone in the back? <laughs> I think that'd be really distracting the entire time. Um, yeah, we... Uh, we think about like how the world's going to end, or maybe even so much more. We might think about like this, like post-apocalyptic, like destruction thing, like the world's going to all kind of be blown up through nukes, or 
uh, when God comes back, everything is going to be destroyed because he doesn't really like this place. He just wants to destroy it all and then we'll give us something new and it'll be great. But that's not really what eschatology is, and especially when you kind of get around more kind of like academic people and they start talking about eschatology, we often use this phrase, and the phrase that we use is eschatology or the end times is actually a study about things that are now but not yet. And this is very kind of unique for Jesus because Jesus talks about something that actually Watermark's been going through now for quite a few years. In the book of Matthew, you see Jesus often talking about this idea of the kingdom of heaven. And over and over and over again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And oftentimes, we kind of just move on past those things. We, we read them really quickly. I mean, even when I got to preach here last time, we talked about uh, some ideas about what the kingdom of heaven was like, and he used some phrases like this. It's like a sower going out to sow seeds. It's like a mustard seed or a treasure hidden in a field. It's a pearl of great price, like a dragnet, like a householder who brings out treasures new and old. Jesus actually uses this phrase in Matthew quite a few times. He uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven is like, primarily because he's trying to get at a reality of what the kingdom is supposed to be, and he's trying to use all these different metaphors and analogies to explain it to us, because the kingdom of heaven can't be described simply. It's not something that we can just kind of quickly kind of grasp. Again, even as a kid, I grew up with this like picture of heaven that like, you know, you have like streets of gold, and you've got like which is really impractical, if you ask me. Like, I don't think walking on gold is going to be a great thing. Um, and you have all these kind of pictures of, like, high walls and, and everything that kind of goes along with this, like, beautiful picture of a kingdom. But that often made me think so much about what heaven was going to be like that I forgot about what today is supposed to be like. And, and this really happened for, and again, I'm kind of, it's my tradition, and so I guess I can, you know, rag on them a little bit. Like, I, I grew up in a tradition of Pentecostals that were so ready to go away to heaven that they stopped caring about the earth and about the world today. Like, I, I grew up hearing, how, I don't know how many of you have probably heard this phrase, like, if Jesus were to come back right now, would you be ready? And, and especially as, like, a 14-year-old, I was like, no! Like, <laughs> I'm 14, I want to live life, like, I want to experience this thing. And so, uh, we got lots of kind of pictures that kept pushing us to have this idea that heaven was something out there, and we keep forgetting that Jesus talks about heaven as something that's here. Because Jesus used two different phrases. The reason why we say, we use this phrase in theology as now but not yet is because Jesus both says the kingdom of heaven is here, and the kingdom of heaven is coming. He says Both which can be really confusing if you're reading your Bible well and all of a sudden you're like, Jesus, make up your mind. Which one is it? Right? Um, but we're not talking about Matthew today. We're actually going to talk about Luke because, again, as a good Pentecostal, this is like our favorite author. Like, if you ask any good academic Pentecostal, like, Luke is the best. Just hands down. And I'll explain why in a bit. Um, but Luke does something very similar. Luke records Jesus' sayings, but he records them a bit differently. Rather than saying the kingdom of heaven is like, Luke actually says the kingdom of God is like. This is the way that Jesus would actually say it, the kingdom of God. Now, if you know anything kind of about biblical studies or you kind of know uh, some of the interplay here, the reason why Jesus in Matthew says the kingdom of heaven is because he, rather than saying the kingdom of Yahweh he would say it in a way that the Jews would be ready to listen to. Because the Jews wouldn't use that word. They wouldn't use Yahweh. It would be blasphemous to actually say the name of God. And so Matthew, writing his letter to Jews, replaced Yahweh with heaven. 
to make it palatable for those he was writing to. But Luke is writing actually to a, a person or a group of people. We're not really sure, but he uses this word Theophilus, which just means beloved by God. And he's writing to Theophilus, and so he actually says it in the way that Jesus probably did say it. The kingdom of God is like. And one of the most important phrases that Luke uses when he's actually explaining what the kingdom of God is like comes from Luke 13, 29. And it's setting up, like we've got, I'm not, I'm I'm a theologian, I'm not like Tommy who is really a biblical scholar. I like to like jump around a little bit, so excuse me that we're not going to be like going line by line. I like doing that too, but not today. Um... In Luke 13, Jesus says this interesting phrase. He says, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus is kind of making this claim about the kingdom of God again, that the kingdom of God knows no boundaries. The kingdom of God knows no boundaries. And all of a sudden we get to this kind of picture in Acts 8.26 of an Ethiopian eunuch who clearly comes from down south And Luke is trying to show us something here, because Luke is the writer of Acts, and he's trying to interplay the words of Jesus and trying to show them how they work out. But before we can actually get to Acts, we have to talk about this, which is also not a great slide to leave up, because if you even read the first part, you're like, what is he talking about, right? Uh, So Deuteronomy 23, 1-8, if you know Luke, Luke is a brilliant writer. To understand both even the book of Luke or the book of Acts You have to understand how Luke thinks. And Luke is interplaying constantly the Old Testament, and he's talking about the Old Testament, and he's reframing it in a new way in light of Christ. One of the first things that he reframes, and this is why Pentecostals love Luke so much, is in Acts chapter 2, if you've read it before, you get this sense where it talks about this idea that the Spirit is falling on all flesh. But one of the most important phrases in in Acts chapter 2 is this phrase at the end that says, and nearly 3,000 people were saved that day. And this is like a whole long chapter on basically this moment where, where the disciples are in the upper room. They're praying, and God sends his presence and his spirit upon them. They start speaking out in, different, uh, in all different languages. People are hearing about Jesus, and they're all getting saved. Like 3,000 are getting saved. But the thing is, Luke uses that 3,000 numbers, uh, again, as an interplay with the Old Testament, One verse in the Old Testament, it's in Exodus. I didn't have time to kind of put them all on slides and show you all of them. But in Exodus 35, you get back to this moment of Moses. And Moses is up on the mountain and he's hearing from God and God gives him the Ten Commandments, this thing that we all kind of probably either had to learn as a kid or you go to a courthouse and they're still up there. Um, and, And Moses is given the Ten Commandments and as the story goes, he comes down from the mountain, which Jesus, which Jesus, God, which God had just given him the Ten Commandments. And he finds the Israelites worshiping a golden calf, and he gets really angry. He breaks the tablets. He smashes the golden calf. And in that story, it says something particular. It says 3,000 among them died that day. But Luke is reframing it. If I can put it very simply so we can kind of move on to our our passage for today. Luke is making this big claim. With the law came death, but with the spirit comes life. With the law, 3,000 people died the day that the Israelites got the law. But when the disciples got the spirit, 3,000 people were saved. This is a really big, important moment because the rest of Acts is going to be Luke showing that the kingdom of God is being made manifest in the world. 
every story in Acts, the kingdom of God is being made manifest. It's the continuation of the story of Jesus. And so as we get to Acts chapter 8 and we're talking about the eunuch, we want to ask, I always like to ask a question, okay, who or what might Luke be talking about here? What might he actually be interplaying? And one of the things that we find with Acts chapter 8 is that he's doing something with Deuteronomy 23. And so Deuteronomy 23, we've got this law, we've got the Torah, the law that the Israelites and the Jews would have lived by. And the very first one, I'm going to just kind of read through some of it, but the very first one says this. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any other descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way. This is a very like, exclusive passage Like, if you look like this, if you've acted like this, if you've done us wrong, you're not allowed to be a part of the people of God. This is what the Torah is really kind of saying when it says this phrase, the assembly of God. It's saying you're not allowed in to be a part of the people of God because of one thing or another. One of the most interesting ones, of course, is the first one for us, is no one who has been emasculated or no one who is a eunuch may enter in to the kingdom of God. And that's where where Luke picks up this story about Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, if I can go back, I'm afraid though, because going back means uh, we're going to get that picture again. All right. In Acts 26, we start with this very important phrase. The angel, an angel of the Lord comes to Philip and tells him to go down to the road down south, Jerusalem to Gaza. And as he's there, the spirit tells Philip to go up to this eunuch. Now, it's very particular. Again, remember, the law brought death. The spirit brings life. And what happens here is the spirit tells Philip in verse 29, the spirit tells Philip to go up to the eunuch. Go and stay there. Listen to what's happening. And as he does... He hears uh, the eunuch reading, and he's reading this passage from Isaiah. And I have to be really careful with this passage, because anytime I teach it in class, I end up crying. So, like, I'm going to try my best not to be awkward for you, because um, my students look at me horrified, and I got, like, tears running in my face as I'm talking about this, right? Um, Philip, Philip tells, uh, oh, sorry, the Spirit tells Philip, go up and stand near this, this chariot. Go listen to what's happening. And as he does, he hears the eunuch reading the book of Isaiah. Now, this, this, even this first part is really densely packed. One of the first things we kind of get, if we're paying attention to the Bible well, is again, we get the picture that this person is a eunuch. But he's not just a eunuch, he's an Ethiopian. Meaning he's probably, he may or may not be a Jew. But there's a good chance that he's not a Jew, because Luke doesn't call him a Jew, he calls him an Ethiopian. And this Ethiopian eunuch, kind of two big exclusive like, reasons why he wouldn't be allowed to be a Jew, is gone up to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. So the very person who actually, according to the Torah law, would be excluded to actually worship Yahweh, has devoted his life so much so that he would travel a very long distance to go worship Yahweh. This is a, this is a huge moment of devotion. To say, I'm not even allowed to be a part of the assembly, but I recognize who Yahweh is, I'm going to worship him anyways. So he goes up to Jerusalem, and he's, and he's 
he's trying to worship in the best way that he can. But he's not necessarily allowed, right? A eunuch wouldn't be allowed into the temple to actually do sacrifices or do kind of any of the ritual uh, practices of the Jews. He, he wouldn't be allowed because his status as a eunuch, and especially as an Ethiopian eunuch, would exclude him from actually being a part. And so one of the first things we find that Luke is very particular about is this person is not actually allowed to be a part of the people of God. If you're, if you're paying attention to the story, the law says no. But this changes because the, the Spirit actually tells Philip, the Spirit says, I want you to go and I want you to just be there with him. And he starts reading this passage, and it's such a beautiful passage that the eunuch doesn't understand. It's this passage in Isaiah. And in Isaiah, we get this beautiful moment. This beautiful moment, what we often kind of use as a um, passage about Jesus. We often, if you, like, wherever, like, growing up in the church, you might have heard this passage at, like, Christmas time, or I know, like, my family, my dad's a pastor, so it's like I can't go throughout Christmas without hearing this passage at some point being read. But it starts with this. It says, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before us, its shear is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And a really important question here is, who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? And the eunuch has no idea what this is saying, but I think that the eunuch might actually relate to it pretty well, because if you think about this whole descendant question, the eunuch can't have descendants. He's identifying with the character that he's reading about in Isaiah, but he, he doesn't know what that character, who he is. He's saying, you can't have descendants, and neither can I. There's a connection here. There's something happening. And so he doesn't understand, and Philip kind of joins him, and he starts to explain to him, have you not heard the events of Jesus? Do you not know what just happened in the past few days? And he goes through the story of Jesus' crucifixion. He goes through the life of Jesus, and he shows that this Isaiah passage is all about Jesus. And then we get this most beautiful, one of the most beautiful questions. Oh, gosh. Oh, I told you. I'm sorry. I can do this. One of the most beautiful questions in all of the New Testament. Look, here's some water. What's stopping me from being baptized? And this question is important because we have to know, first off, what baptism is. Again, I grew up in a church setting where like, baptism was like, oh, you're proclaiming that you love Jesus. I'm like, well, yeah, but I also already did that. Like, and I do it a lot, I think. Right? And so I always kind of was like, what is this baptism thing? Why, why is it so important? And as I started studying the Bible deeply and I started recognizing what baptism was, I found that baptism is always a sign of being a part of a people, being a part of a group. For the Jews, if you were to be baptized, it was because you were being what was called ritually cleansed. You were being cleansed from sins that you might have had. It was, a, it was a symbol and a sign of being cleansed, being made clean again. So anytime that a Jew might have sin in their life, one of the things that they would have to do is go through their ritual cleansing. Another thing that you might do if you're going to get baptized is you might be someone who is not a Jew who wants to become a Jew. You might be someone who says, I, I think I like this idea of Yahweh. I want to follow this God. And so it, part of the three things that you had to do, you had to be circumcised, you had to do your sacrifices, and you had to be baptized. Those are the three symbols that would say, you were once a Gentile, now you can call yourself a Jew. Baptism, circumcision, 
and uh, your sacrifices. But, I mean, if you hear that well, you notice what's going on already. He's asking the question, look, here's some water, what? And he's pointing and he's thinking about his own body. Is this stopping me from being a part of the people of God? Like, I've just heard this story about who Jesus is. I've just heard everything that he's done. Is this stopping me? And I think if we take a moment to reflect on that question, we've probably all asked that question. We've all asked the question, what's stopping me? Is this thing, is this body, is this thought, is this idea, is this way of life, is this thing, is it stopping me from being a part of the people of God? And I think... Once, once we kind of see here, Philip just kind of goes, of course not, right? Like, I mean, I'm just putting words into his mouth, but he gets right off of the chariot and they go and he gets baptized immediately as a sign that he finally gets to be a part of a people. He's been in exile for so long. He's, he's wanted to worship Yahweh. He's wanted to worship God and he's never had the way in. But then he hears the story of Jesus and he recognizes that nothing can exclude him from being a part of the people of God. Nothing can exclude him. This story is probably one of the most clear pictures of the gospel in all of the, all of the New Testament. This is the gospel. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is, again, what uh, Jesus says in Luke thirteen twenty nine: People will come from east and west, north and south, and will take places in the feast of the kingdom of God. This is the gospel. This is the moment in which we recognize that the exclusion that was placed on him by the law is no longer made in effect because of Jesus. He can now become a part of the people of God. I, I think about this in terms of kind of my own life because if I want to read this passage well, I also want to read it and reflect on it for who I am. A lot of times we do have that kind of picture where we might think to ourselves, yeah, I've definitely asked this question. I've asked the question of, have I done something that excludes me from the people of God? Am I am somebody who's excluded from the people of God? But I think sometimes the more important question is, have we excluded other people? Have we looked at other people and based on who they are or what they look like or what they do and say, you can't be a part of this? Because I think, if anything, we might find ourselves being a bit more like the Torah and more like the law and less like the Spirit. We might be the people who bring death and not life because we're not living life by the Spirit. I think about this in my own life, and I, and I, and I, and I know times and places in my own life where I've done this. Again, I grew up um, in, in a certain Pentecostal tradition. I'm not going to kind of point fingers because they're great people, but they've got some weird thoughts. Um, <laughs> But I grew up in this tradition that actually said, hey, you cannot be a leader, you cannot be a pastor, you cannot be a preacher if you're a woman. You can't. And they read a couple of verses in the Bible, and well, I, I kind of know now that they read them very poorly, but they, but they read some passages and they say, look, Paul is saying that you can't. And I, and I grew up just like this. I mean... To confess, even here in this moment, I grew up very much because of the tradition that was handed to me saying that no, a woman can't be a pastor. No, a woman can't be a leader in her household. No, a woman can't be in charge over a man because the Bible says no. 
But I had to go through my own process of recognizing how often I would exclude women from doing something and being a part of the kingdom of God because of a bad reading of the biblical text. I was being just like the Torah and I was keeping people out all the while the Spirit was trying to bring people in. I think that if we kind of reflect, even in our own moments and our own times, we might find that there are places and spaces and times that we do this to other people. That we look at people based on what they look like or who they are, and we say, you can't be a part. All the while, the people just want to be a part of our kingdom, part of this kingdom, part of this community, part of whatever community it is. I I think when we do that, we're being as far away from being like Jesus as possible. Because the Spirit is constantly telling us that these are the people who are part of the kingdom. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus does, right? Jesus does this over and over and over again in the Gospels. He goes to the people who no one else wants to be with. In fact, he does it so much that he starts being called a drunkard. Because he finds himself in places and spaces with people who are actually outside of what the religious elite would say are part of the kingdom. So they start pointing the the finger at him too and saying, well, if you kind of go out and hang out with those people all the time, then you must be one of them. Jesus says things all the time that we miss. He says things like, I didn't come for those uh, who are well but the sick, just in the same way that a physician doesn't actually help out anyone who's healed, but for someone who's sick. If our church is to truly be the church, we have to be people of the Spirit who are going out and finding the people that everyone else has excluded. I mean, this is the story. It's not, this is not me saying, this is literally, the Spirit tells Philip. It's not an apostle, it's not a disciple, it's not someone else. The Spirit of God himself tells Philip, go to the person that the law has explicitly excluded. Go to that person and spend time with that person and see what happens. And so I know we're, we're kind of actually going to wrap up quick today. Like, yay. Uh, but I do want to do communion. And I think communion is a, a very important picture of this exact thing. And so if the communion servers will get ready. Um, Communion is such an important kind of moment for us, even in recognizing this idea of what the Spirit is doing. Because Jesus, on the night that he was crucified, he brings his apostles together, again, a group of very unlikely people who actually would have been kicked out by a lot of others, right? You've got some apostles there who are kind of removed from being part of the religious elite, the Pharisees and Sadducees, because they weren't good enough. You have a few people there, uh, at least one person there who is actually considered a zealot who would go around and killing Romans or killing people who actually sympathized with Rome. And then you've got Jesus kind of being wise and being like, well, I'm going to have a zealot who kills people like that and then I'm going to get a tax collector who supports Rome. And I'm going to put them in the same room together. I'm going to take the people who everyone else seems to think are not good enough, and I'm going to bring them to this table, and I'm going to share a meal with them. Because that's the picture of what the body and blood of Jesus does. It takes people from the outside and brings them in. Right? It takes people who are unlikely to be together and says, you're welcome here together. You might look different. You might have even been excluded because of the way the law talks about you. 
But in the power of the Spirit, no one's excluded. Everyone is brought into the kingdom of God. And so I want to take communion together today and and doing that in the symbol and thought process of even us as a body, we're taking communion together saying that we're affirming that we all should be in this room together to learn about who God is and to be affected and shaped by the power and presence of God. But also kind of recognizing that we're supposed to be doing exactly what Luke writes about in Acts, continuing the mission of Jesus. Continuing to bring people to this table. Continuing to bring people into the kingdom of God. That it's not just enough to say that we're in. We have to go out and bring other people in with us. And I think for the church, especially where we're at today, is to find the people that the, that the church ourselves has often excluded and bring those people in. All people are welcome into the kingdom of God. And this is beautiful because even in this picture of, of the eunuch, the eunuch is wanting to be a part. The eunuch wants to know about God. The eunuch wants to be a part, and oftentimes even those are excluded. So I want us to take communion together, and I want you to think about that as we take communion. I want you to think about both how you might have been excluded at some point and now been welcomed in, and how you might have excluded others and how you need to bring them in as well, because all of us are welcome at the table of God. All people are welcome at the table of God if they'll just come and eat, right? So let's pray and let's take communion together. God, we thank you for times that we have together to learn about you, to be in your presence to actually be affected by your spirit and to be changed and to move to look more like you every day. I pray that you would help us to have this thought, that you would help us to have this moment where we go out and we say, who have we excluded and who can we bring in to be in the presence and to be changed and shaped by God by having them in with us? God, we love you and we want to be faithful people of you. We want to be faithful people in your kingdom. So help change us and move us to look more like you every single day. In your name we pray, amen.